Hello everybody, my name is Andy Fernandez. And my name is Michael Fernandez. And welcome back to another episode of What Makes It Great. Today we are talking about 12 Angry Men from 1957, directed by Sidney Lumet, not ranked on the original version of the list, and ranked number 87 on the 10th anniversary. Hmm. 1957, ranked 87, got it. Yes, that's how we'll remember. Uh, Was this your first time watching? Yes, this is my first time watching this movie, and this is the second, I think, movie that we've watched together. Yeah, we watched Shane together, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And now we watch 12 Angry Men together. I had seen this one before. I believe I watched it in a high school English class. Mm. I don't remember why, the context of why. Seems like a very high school English class kind of movie. Yeah. It's, it became a play afterwards, mm. and it is very play-like. Um and I remember thinking it was all right when I first watched it. I remember liking it, actually. And then I now own it on DVD. That's how we watched it. I, the, one of the local libraries was getting rid of all, a lot of their movies. And this was one of the ones I grabbed. Hmm. So, um, but I really like this movie. Yeah, I'm glad that you got it. This one's very good. Yeah, this, this one's a great fun. one. Uh, it'll be easy for us, I think, to talk about what makes this one great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really short, really quick, really exciting to watch. Excellent. Loved it. <laughs> Loved the length. Yeah, it's like an hour and a half or an hour and 35 minutes or something. Um, it's perfect. And uh, yeah, so I have a little bit about the movie. Um, it did start off in 1954 as a live TV performance. Mm. Um, and I believe some of the jurors that are in this movie, some of the actors that play some of the jurors rather, were in the original television broadcast of it. Mm. And I think Franchot Tone from yeah, Mutiny from, on the Bounty was was played one of the jurors as well. It won, I think, an Emmy, but it was like it aired one time in 1954. It was a live broadcast of this thing and. And it was very well received, but it kind of aired once and then never again. And Henry Fonda really, really liked it. He thought it would be great. And so he tried to get it made. And he's listed as a producer on this movie. Yeah, I thought that was cool. He is great in this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's a producer and stars in it. And did he help convert it to a film thing or no? Yeah, apart he, from the money, or did he? Yeah, help he fund he helped fund it, okay. um, and he thought this would be a good opportunity for him to kind of get his feet wet as a producer and start producing his own movies. Um, but this was the only movie he ever produced. <laughs> Afterwards, he was like, yeah, I, no, "I don't think I can do that." Um, but he brings on as the producer and the writer the original writer of the television play, uh, Reginald Rose who um, got his start in TV. A lot of the crew got their start and everything got their start in TV. And, you know, at this time, they oftentimes call it the golden age of TV mm-hmm. at this time. And so just think of all the talent that that TV was creating. And now we're starting to see it in the movies. Hmm. That's cool. It's kind of like Citizen Kane whenever they came over from, um, like, stage acting when they came over to... Mm-hmm break into film and did a bunch of cool things but i guess just not nearly as influential (laughs) yeah well and one of those guys that comes over from tv is the director Sidney lumet Mm. he is the first this is his first film um and he's a jewish born director he was born in philadelphia and then grows up in manhattan and he's directed a number of 
big movies, uh, Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino in the 70s. Wow. Uh, Network, also in the 70s, which is also a movie on this list that we'll get to talk about that I've never seen. I've seen Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. I really like Dog Day Afternoon. Never seen Serpico, but I know about it because they always send the episode when Charlie <laughs> Kelly and yes. uh, Serpico. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, a movie that I really like of Sidney Lumet's, which is his final movie, um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which came out in 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. We have a Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Marissa Ethan, Tomei. Yeah, and Ethan Hawke and Albert Finney. I, have you seen that movie? Uh, I think so. It's so good. Mm-hmm. I saw it in the theaters when that came out, and then I have it on DVD now. It's really, really tense, um, but really great. Um, he's kind of known as a great actor's director. He does a lot of rehearsals. So he came from TV and he came from the stage and he started off as an actor. And so for this movie, they had two weeks of rehearsal before filming. Um, that's what it's kind of unheard of for movies oftentimes. And he kind of asked for it and got it. And he works with them to develop their characters. But also during these rehearsals, it includes blocking for camera movements and everything. So he was super well prepared when it came time to shoot this movie. Mm. And I think they said it took like two or three weeks to shoot this movie. Wow, that's cool. Um, He's gotten four nominations for Best Director at the Academy Awards and one for Adapted Screenplay, but he didn't win any of them. He only won one honorary Academy Award. Mm. And he dies at the age of 86 from lymphoma in 2011. Wow. And I saw a funny quote that said he didn't want to take up space when he died and he just asked to have his ashes spread at Katz's Deli in New York City which is a famous Jewish delicatessen wow. um, but I don't think they did that because that probably wouldn't go with like health codes and no, stuff yeah, definitely not. Uh, but that's Sidney Lumet he I I always heard of him because I've seen like Dog Day Afternoon I really liked and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and uh, I had forgotten that for a second that he had directed this movie too mm-hmm. and uh, before we go into the movie, this movie largely takes place in one location with 12 people talking. Um, it's a, And it is still super entertaining and super innovative in terms of the camera movements and different things that they do with the camera that will kind of that I wrote some notes about that we can kind of talk about throughout the, as we're discussing the movie. But it's just... Always, I love movies that take place in one or very few locations and how actors or directors kind of, or editors or however, kind of make, solve the puzzle of still keeping it interesting while still being in only in one place. Hmm. And this movie just does it so well. Yeah, it does. Um, it's, yeah, you don't really feel like you're in one room. Mm-hmm. Um, before we tell too much about the movie, though, um, are we ready to jump into it yeah oh let's do it okay so this movie is black and white i think most of the movies from here on out are going to be in color uh but this one's black and white no uh we start off outside of a courthouse and the camera kind of tilts goes up it's on the ground it kind of tilts up and up and up the pillars of this courthouse and then it flips and reverses and we're inside the courthouse looking up at the ceiling and then the camera tilts down I like the kind of mirroring of those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the camera kind of goes through the halls in this tracking shot as we kind of see some people answering some phones and like talking to each other, kind of going about their day. And then it stops outside of courtroom 228. And then we go inside 
and the judge is there talking to the jury. It's a case that we learn it's a case about murder, and they're being tasked with deciding this man's fate, and their verdict must be unanimous. We also learn that the death sentence is mandatory in this case, and there's a couple of other interesting things that are happening here. One, the judge is to- looks totally disinterested. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the death penalty and murder, and he's got like, he looks like he's falling asleep. Mm-hmm. He's got his hand on his face and drinking water. He has no interest in this case. It apparently he's just very flippant. Yeah. And then we also see the defendant. He is a kid. He looks real young, and mm-hmm. he looks not white. Mm-hmm. So um, my guess is this movie probably takes place in. I think it takes place in New York. It does take place in New York. And so I'm guessing this kid is Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And he's on trial for murder, and he just looks alone. And all the jury, as they go and leave the courthouse or the room, they kind of look at him as he's, and then it, uh, as they're walking out, and then the cameras on his face as it kind of fades out and it fades in to the, I don't know what you'd call it, the the jury room, the room for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, the movie room, uh, and while the credits are playing. And so we get a little bit of a score. And yeah, this is where we're going to be for the pretty much the rest of the movie until the very, very, very end. Yeah, I think it's like less than two minutes or something like that. of Like time spent outside of the room. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah. All 90 minutes or whatever this movie. Real short, but it's like all in this little room where they got to decide the, the verdict. Mm-hmm. And the opening shot here where the credits are playing and they're coming into the room it is i don't i was watching the commentary it's a over six minute long tracking shot mm. as it starts the movie basically wow the camera is positioned up in the in the up in the roof uh, behind a fan that's hanging from the roof as they're kind of coming in and then the camera comes down and goes up to some people up to the window as you know, because a man kind of goes to try to turn on the fan, it doesn't work, and so he, the camera then follows him to a window where he opens the window, and they talked about how the camera always has these moves that follow the character's actions. Hmm. I don't know what you call it, like a motivated camera move or something, as opposed to an unmotivated camera move, where it's just kind of follow the camera's following the action. Um, they're dabbing themselves with handkerchiefs, so you know it's really hot, and the what some guy says the weather bureau says it's going to be the hottest day of the year um lee j cobb who we've seen in on the waterfront is juror number three and he's got this he has this mindset he's like we should slap these kids down before they get into trouble he's like because never have you ever seen so much talking in a thing that seems so clear-cut there's just jabber 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 um so he's already kind of made up his mind mm-hmm there's another juror is excited that they got an exciting murder case instead of a dull burglary or assault. And one of the jurors, juror number seven, has tickets to a Yankees game. So he's hoping they'll get out quick. Um, and they kind of sit in order around the table. Um, but like I said, they're all in one room, but the camera's moving. It's zooming in. It's just It makes it interesting and dynamic, even though they're all in one location, when a lot of movies like this that are based on that are like kind of play like the camera just kind of sits there this camera moves this camera is very very active Mm -hmm. 
I really don't have much to say about the camera. The story was really compelling, to oh, be yeah. really honest. Well, <laughs> Only saw it once and uh, didn't really focus much on the... I did towards the end, and I'll talk about those shots, but mm-hmm. for the most part, yeah, it took forever for them all to get in here, and they all seemed pretty uh, uncomfortable to be in this small room with all these mm-hmm. cool-headed men. There's about 12 of <laughs> There's them, I 12, think. 12 even-keeled men. Yes, very, very calm. Yeah. Well, let's get friendly. into this story then a little bit. They decided to do a prelim- preliminary vote just to see where they stand. And they kind of, all those voting guilty, and they raise their hands, and the foreman, juror number one, goes around and counts them. There's 11. Oh, yeah, they don't have names, so they're, they don't, you know, it's all like juror number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 10, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't get to know their names. You get to know, like, two characters, or maybe one character's last name. Yeah, last name's at the very end of the movie. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and one not guilty. That is Henry Fonda, juror number eight. Oh, yeah, after the voting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's 11 guilty. Was voting not guilty? One, right. 11 guilty, one not guilty. Well, now we know where we are. Boy, oh boy, there's always one. <laughs> when I was watching this, uh, so we saw Henry Fonda in The Grapes of Wrath, mm-hmm. and I kind of forgot what he looked like <laughs> I, I recognize his voice instantly whenever yeah. he speaks mm-hmm. um, but right at the beginning when they're all coming in I thought that he was the advertising guy for a little bit uh-huh. and I had to get like reoriented but mm-hmm. and I was like oh man it's black and white oh these big casts I don't know any of these people oh a guy from on the waterfront and then I was mm-hmm. like is that Henry Fonda no and then he votes no, and uh, he votes not guilty. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that's definitely him. Yeah. And he's very, very similar to his character in The Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, which is, that's I wanted to talk about that, too. We've seen him in two movies, and they've both got pretty similar, I don't know, themes, ideologies backing them. And part of it is because his ideology. He was very liberal, very outspoken, um, politically involved person and grapes of wrath and 12 angry men have a lot share a lot of the ideals that he personally has it's cool um so but man he's great in this movie he he's just he's just great and uh, we'll talk about it uh they ask him if he thinks he's innocent and he's like i don't know i just want to talk i don't he's only 18 and and i just it would I don't want to be a someone that votes just without even talking about yeah, it. He's like, this is life or death. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to kill this man, and we're not even going to talk about it. Like, it's a, a human life. We deserve to at least, you know, sit and talk about it for an hour or two. Yeah. Like, I mean, you sat in court with the rest of us. You heard what we did. The kid's a dangerous killer. You could see it. He's 18 years old. Well, that's old enough. He, he stabbed his own father four inches into the chest. They proved it a dozen different ways in court. Would you like me to list them for you? And he's like, we just got to make sure we're doing the right thing. He's been kicked around all his life. We owe him a few words. Mm. Uh, uh, one of the guys says, I think it's juror number 10. He's like, they're, I know these people. They're born liars. And so we've got the obvious racist in the room. Mm-hmm. I don't mind telling you this, mister. We don't owe him a thing. He got a fair trial, didn't he? What do you think that trial cost? He's lucky he got it. Know what I mean? Now look, we're all grown-ups in here. We heard the facts, didn't we? You're not gonna tell me that we're supposed to believe this kid knowing what he is, 
Listen, I've lived among them all my life. You can't believe a word they say. You know that. I mean, they're born liars. Only an ignorant man can believe that. Now, listen. Do you think you were born with a monopoly on the truth? I think certain things should be pointed out to this man. Come on, this isn't Sunday. We don't need a sermon. Come on, we have a job to do now. Let's do it. Juror number 10 and juror number 3 are kind of our villains of the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, juror number 8 is our hero. Mm-hmm. And so they decide to go once around the table to share what they all think. Yeah, he's like, it's, uh, he's like, it, what did he say? It's uh, innocent until proven guilty. And I, I just have uh, some doubt on some mm-hmm. of this stuff. Like, uh, and then they all go around and give their reasons. And mm-hmm. it's uh, how we like get what the heck happened in the courtroom <laughs> slowly, but surely each person talks about, well, they remember when they brought up this piece of evidence and they said, yada, 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 yada. yada. Mm-hmm. How do you refute that? And he's like, well <laughs> yeah and that's henry fonda's goal here is like all we need to do is have reasonable doubt uh that this person may not have done it mm-hmm. and and that's enough to to do a not guilty verdict and he's like i have some questions that weren't fully answered and things like that and so everyone else seems pretty sure that this person's guilty and the first guy which i think is juror number two says i just think he's guilty I thought it was obvious from the word go. I mean, nobody proved otherwise. And juror number two, we're, we're talking, we're watching, he's like, we're like, man, that voice sounds familiar. And it's uh, John Fiedler, who is... Um, Piglet. Piglet, yeah, from Winnie the Pooh. But the best part is when it st- stops. And he sounds just like Piglet. <laughs> like, that's his normal voice. He's not. Looks kind of like him, too. He does kind of look like him. Very timid, shy mm-hmm. guy. And this is where Henry Fonda, juror number eight, is like, Nobody has to prove otherwise. The burden of proof's on the prosecution. Then Lee J. Cobb, juror number three, goes over some of the facts presented in the case, and he's like, this is why, blah, blah, blah. He's, he's like, this is why. There's a neighbor across the way who uh, looked through the window, through a moving train, saw him <laughs> clearly do it, mm-hmm. and then this other one who... Neighbor uh, saw him running away. Other and... old neighbor with no hearing issues uh, heard him <laughs> scream, I'm going to kill you, and almost like stated his first and last name. Mm-hmm. Me, so-and-so, is going to kill you. Already dead person. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, so he's got this... What else does he have? The knife that's unique? Mm-hmm. Is that one of the first pieces, I think? Yeah. Um, but juror number four is also on juror number three and yeah. ten's side. And he says, like, the kid's alibi seems flimsy. He went, he said he saw a movie, but he couldn't recall the movie or the actresses or the actors' names in the movie. Um, and uh, the next, some one of the guys passes. He doesn't want to talk. And then uh, another guy's like, the the witnesses to the argument that this kid had with his father seemed to be motive enough for him. And then juror number seven, the baseball guy goes over the criminal history of the kid that he's been involved with gangs and stuff. And then, um, I think this is when juror number three, Lee J Cobb, who's also amazing in this movie, uh, goes over to juror number eight, Henry Fonda, and he sits down next to him. He's talking about his kids He's like, how we haven't seen his son in two years due to a fight that they got into. And this is kind of, we learned the motivating factor, basically, mm-hmm. for juror number three, is his own relationship with his son mm-hmm. and the strained and tension that has come about because of it. 
Yeah, he's like, kids these days, or something like that. It's these kids the way they are nowadays. He's like, they don't respect authority. They don't mm -hmm. do what their dad says. Mm -hmm. like, they just run away and... Just like my son did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all, kids. They're terrible, I mm -hmm. tell you. Uh, some of the jurors are talking about the slums where this kid comes from and how they breed criminals. And the silent one who skipped who skipped his turn reveals that he's lived in the slums all his life. Mm -hmm. So we're getting glimpses of all these different characters. We're getting glimpses of where they stand with racism and prejudice, uh, economic class. They're all it's twelve angry white men. Yeah, that. Yeah. But there, but within that, there's also um, there's an immigrant in here. There is, you know, different economic classes, there's different occupations, there's different personalities. Um, while it is a very homogenous group in one sense, it's also a very varied group within the, the limits of what, how varied they can be. Mm -hmm. um, sure. <laughs> right. Since it's, like I was saying, since this movie's come out, it's been made into a stage play and there's been all kinds of different versions of it with women included, cool. with different races included. Um, while keeping a lot of the script the same, just those little changes bring in so much more life and, you know, modernization to this story. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to see, I think, a remake of this movie with more diversity in the jury. Yeah, for sure. You could really make it, it could be the, almost the exact same script and it could feel so different and so fresh and so about today. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk more about the all men being in there later at the end. Okay. Um, let's see. We're, oh, yes. Uh, and then juror number eight, Henry Fonda, starts his turn. He was like, I think the defense lawyer was stupid. Um, he just wasn't doing enough to help this kid out. He wasn't asking the right questions. Uh, they asked to see the knife the kid bought that was the potential murder weapon again. And... The knife is supposed to be very unique. Yeah, and it's supposed to be like one of a kind from this shop that you're not allowed to buy. Not, you're not allowed to like have a switchblade. Right. And so it's illegal. And yeah, he got it from this one shop and it's got this weird, unique design that no other knife has. And mm -hmm. There's no way it could be. Um, and the kid's alibi was that it fell out of his pocket and he didn't even, he lost it that mm -hmm. night or something. Um, but they're like, oh no, you definitely used it to to kill your dad and yada yada and and henry fonda's like you say it's the only knife like one of a kind right and <laughs> yeah like, and it's yeah. cool it's like sticking in the table uh -huh. blade in the table yeah because they they ask for the knife that's like one right. little break they get they ask for the knife and they can have the evidence and they're holding it and looking around and then uh, henry fonda pulls out basically the same knife out of his pocket and stabs it in the table yeah <laughs> it's a really cool moment where did you get it? I went out walking for a couple of hours last night. I walked through the boys' neighborhood. I bought that in a little pawn shop just two blocks from the boys' house. It cost six dollars. Uh, I was in the special features like, this would be uh, cause for the case to be dismissed because the jury, the juror is obviously doing his own investigation outside of yeah. this case, and like you can't do that. Yeah, he went out. Yeah, no. um, but still, really cool moment in the movie. Um, and he says he bought it in a pawn shop two blocks away from where the boy lived. Mm -hmm. He's like, so it's definitely not unique. Uh, anybody could have had this knife. It does not implicate the kid, basically. And at this point, juror number eight proposes that we have a secret vote 
where you'll write down guilty or not guilty, and he's going to abstain from it. And if there are still 11 votes for guilty, he'll vote guilty. If there is one or more not guilty votes, they stay and talk some more. Mm -hmm. So they go around, they collect the scraps, the foreman's flipping them over and counting them. Ten guilty votes and one not guilty vote. Mm-hmm. And so some of them are getting real mad. Who voted not guilty? Lee J. Cobb's like, you, you, Mr. Slums, Mr. Grew Up yep. in the Slums, it was definitely you. They get in a big thing, and then this old man who's number nine. Juror number nine. He's like, he didn't change his vote. I didn't. Oh, and fine. it's kind of awkward, but also interesting. They have this camera shot on juror number nine, only on juror number nine, the old man who was in the original broad TV broadcast. Cool. Um, where it's a real extreme close-up where he's looking straight into the camera. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, they do it a couple of times They have for a couple this of fourth walls broken, I feel. Like uh, Henry Fonda does, too. He looks at the camera straight. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess it's supposed to be another juror because they're in this room that's mm-hmm. what's supposed to feel like, like a point but... of view shot or something mm-hmm. but yeah, he looks yeah and so does this old guy here yeah he's like i voted i he's like uh i just want to support him because he was so um passionate and i wanted to continue talking well it's not easy to stand alone against the ridicule of others so he gambled for support and i gave it to him i respect his motives but the boy in trial is probably guilty but uh I want to hear more. And then the juror number 10 gets mad when, and he gets up and uses the restroom while juror number nine is talking. The, the racist guy gets up and goes to the bathroom mm-hmm. and he gets really mad. He's like, why I'm talking here. Why can't you? And then I love juror number eight. He calms him down. He goes, I hear you. you never will. Let's sit down. It's such, I thought a lot about that line about how, much that happens today mm-hmm. with politics, with t- discussions on race, mm-hmm. and how there's so many people where I feel like I have that same kind of feeling of like they're not hearing you and they never will. Mm-hmm. Like there's some people like it's just not worth getting that upset about sometimes, you know? Yeah. Because they're just they're stuck in their backwards racist ideology and it's so frustrating trying to talk with you know mm-hmm. um but yeah this guy embodies that juror number 10 does and then poor old man juror number nine is still he's getting frustrated but he's found uh, a teammate in old henry fonda and then mm-hmm. is it here or is it later whenever it's got to be later whenever the other two younger guys stand up for the old man or i forget who says it it might be the baseball guy who says it yeah i think it's later on yeah uh because right now they go and they take a break uh juror number three goes and apologizes to i think it's juror number five or six the guy from the slums Mm -hmm. but he appears not to really accept it and then uh henry fonda goes to the bathroom and and he chats a little bit with the baseball guy in there and we learn that he's a salesman and henry fonda is an architect and the salesman juror number seven he wants to be done already he wants to go to the game that's all he wants to do is get out and go to the game before it rains got tickets for the yankees and the cleveland indians i think Mm -hmm. um and uh, one juror challenges him. He's like, uh, challenges juror number eight. And he says, Suppose you, supposing you talk us all out of this and the boy really did knife his father. You ever think of that? And, uh, you know, it, it kind of puts the weight on this. This is, a, again, as if we didn't already know, this is a really important decision and big responsibility. And they need to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. 
And so, but it doesn't, it doesn't crush his resolve. Uh, they continue to kind of challenge Jura number eight and the camera kind of pushes in on Henry Fonda. He starts to talk, but then he stops when he notices two jurors are like playing tic-tac-toe or something. And Henry Fonda goes over there and like, this isn't a game. Like, this is serious. Oh, yeah. There's one uh, juror number 12, I think. I think it's 3 and 12. They're playing, like, across the table. But 12 is, uh, he's an advertising guy, mm-hmm. and he has already, like, doodled something, and he's just been zoning out and not paying attention at all. He is really, he never says anything, basically. He doesn't really decide anything. He's really noncommittal. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it, what, I don't know how to describe that character, but he just, doesn't he has want to no be backbone. There. Yeah, he doesn't want to be there. He's just going with the flow. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when juror number eight brings up that there was a train going by at the time of the murder, which he argues would have made it impossible for the old man to have heard the murder and identified the voices. And uh, the old man juror and juror number nine argues that the old man witness made up could have made up the story to get attention. Mm-hmm. And that kind of becomes a theme of like all these witnesses and things. They maybe are just trying to get attention mm-hmm. and get some limelight out of this. Mm-hmm. And then juror number eight brings up the phrase, I'm going to kill you. That uh, the old man witness says that he heard the son say to his father. Mm-hmm. And he argues basically that this means that He's like, doesn't this mean that they're actually going to kill him? How many times have we said that? I'm going to kill you for that, honey. I'm going to kill you, Junior. Uh, All these different things. Like, we never really actually mean it. Um, And so he's trying to cause some doubt throughout throughout all these things. And then they decide to have another vote at this point. And another juror has changed their mind to not guilty. So they're at 9 to 3 guilty Hmm. at this moment. Then they go back to more discussion. Another juror asks why why he would come back to his home three hours after he allegedly killed his father. Mm-hmm. And this causes some more arguing, and then they call for another vote, and now they're down to eight to four mm-hmm. in favor of guilty. And <laughs> after this vote, Lee J. Cobb, uh, juror number three, gets up, and he's like, what is going on here? What is this? Love your underprivileged brother week? He's, uh, I thought it was a, an interesting line. Uh, he's always yelling too. Yeah, but his man. character gets there real fast and he's always yelling. What is the deal here? And that is this when he says this isn't a game or something like that. And then he says, uh, "Oh, what does he say? He says I'm going to kill you." <laughs> yeah, and because they start to question the old man witness if he could have gotten to his door from his bedroom in 15 seconds to see the kid running down the hall. And well, they do a big old reenactment yeah. of this whole thing. Juror number eight asks for a diagram of the apartment, and he kind of paces out the distance in the room that the he's man. An architect, so yeah. he knows it, he knows paces exactly <laughs> uh, that he must have walked. And then they time him, and they said that this is supposed to take fifteen seconds, and they time him, and it took him forty-one seconds. Mm-hmm. And then Lee J. Cobb gets so angry, and he yells that he's going to kill Fonda. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. 
And maybe the moment of the movie. Like, do you actually mean that? Yeah, he's like, you don't really mean you'll kill me, do you? What this like shit-eating grin on his face? Mm -hmm. He's like, gotcha, punk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. But these two playing off each other are so great. I had so much fun watching Lee J. Cobb and Henry Fonda acting Mm -hmm. in this movie. Uh, And this scene is kind of one of the moments where it just kind of builds the tension all the way up to this point. It's so great. Uh, He gets them good here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They call for another vote, and it's six to six. And I think the baseball guy says something like, we're going into extra innings here. He takes off his jacket for the first time because he was ready to get Mm -hmm. out of there like in five minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Takes off his jacket and puts it up. The heat is starting to get to them, and they're sweating and fanning themselves, and it begins to rain, so they have to close the windows. And uh, the foreman goes up to juror number eight and tells him about a time when it stormed like this in the middle of a football game he was coaching so we hear that he was the foreman juror number one was a is a high school football coach and uh they have to flip the switch on for the light in the room because of the rainstorm it's gotten dark and then the baseball guy tries the fan and it comes on and like oh hallelujah kind of a thing yeah it turns out because this wasn't a color movie and isn't a color movie turns out that the light was out the entire time <laughs> yep <laughs> um and I, Sidney lumet in one of the special features was talking about a couple of really great things that he does there in terms of lighting and in terms of camera so for lighting there's like there was basically three lighting setups that we had to to do for this movie he's like one when it was daytime outside when they had the windows open and then he's like and then the transition period when it starts to rain they had to set up the lighting for that and then whenever they turn the overhead lights on in the room mm-hmm. and he's talking about how do i make a movie in one room seem interesting or dynamic and what he came up with is two camera techniques that he does basically the first he says about the first third of the movie the camera is higher up for most of the time where you're kind of looking down on people. The second third, it's at about eye level. And then the final third, the camera is looking, is down lower and is looking up at the people. And uh, also the camera starts off with wide angle lenses to get a lot of things in the shot and there's a lot of distance. And as the movie progresses, the lens gets longer um but i think that's how it would be phrased um to where the spaces between people look smaller and smaller and so it becomes more and more claustrophobic on top of the camera angle shifting from up to low or you know up high down to down low which also gives to a claustrophobic rising tension kind of feeling um and i just thought that was Brilliant, and I, I wanted to talk about it here as the lighting is kind of shifting um, at this part in the movie with the storm and, and turning on the overhead lights because that's also subliminally what's going on with the camera that is feel, feeding into this feeling. And I don't know if you got that feeling whenever you were watching the movie, just the kind of tension boiling up, if that was something you were aware of or not. If you, I was not aware of the camera shifts and changes, but I was aware of the feeling that it was creating for me. I don't know. What did you have any kind of experience or thoughts with that? No, just that it they start doing like more close ups and they do a couple mm-hmm. of cool yeah, low angle shots and back and forth uh, between some of the characters, Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb, I think. 
specifically whenever they're arguing but mm-hmm. uh no it's a it's a cool you know cinematography little design yeah um but no i mean the tension was just building because the tension was building in the, in the, the story plot plot yeah. moving along yeah um they some of them call for a hung jury but they're not going to go for it so they say like the judge's not going to accept it because they haven't deliberated long enough and so they keep talking fonda brings up the boy's alibi um he says he remembered the names of the movies he saw in court, but the testimony that happened in the kitchen after the murder, he couldn't recall. Yeah, and he's like, look, he comes back, he's being, he's like arrested right away whenever he gets home or something like that, and then he's in the room with his dead father like a couple of feet over there, and they're mm-hmm. hounding him on, you know, who is in this movie, what was the name of this movie, he's like, what, what exactly just happened, and he's just in shock, and mm-hmm. he's like, how could you possibly recall uh, these things, and then he's grills juror number three four, four. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's like slugworth he's got glasses he does look like, like slugworth <laughs> uh, he's just like who's that chief wiggum guy in that one movie he's like that kind of character who's like always i don't know very logistical and he's got all of his uh, data and his evidence to support and he's well you know what i'm talking about um that guy what was that movie um that we've watched for this show yeah I can't recall. It was the the baby in Stanswick and uh, oh, um, Sullivan's Travels. Oh, oh, uh, sorry, uh, Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity. Yes, the chief guy, Chief Wiggum character in Double uh, Indemnity. Oh, oh, with the with the lips. Oh yes. my gosh, the famous gangster guy, actor. Yes. Um, uh, I forget his name right now. Yeah, I'll look guy. it up while you he's keep got talking. he's got vibes like that. This is juror number four, so he's uh, really really. Uh, tough and he's like juror number three's info man and they're kind of like a little duo thing here and then um he's going back and forth with him and then he starts grilling him he's like well what'd you do on what'd you do last night Mm -hmm. me and the wife did this 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 what about the night before Mm -hmm. Uh, this 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 he's like what about monday we actually saw a movie on monday Mm -hmm. oh yeah (laughs) what'd you see and he like uh he really struggles uh, he like can't get it and then somebody else like that's not what it's called it's called or piglets like it's not this it's that close but it's that yeah it's like, oh whoops yeah that's what i meant we saw that and and catches er, him in his own little by the way edward g robinson was the name of that actor gotcha. from double indemnity gotcha. um but yeah this slugworth guy earlier in the movie he he said someone asked him like don't you ever sweat and he's like no Mm-hmm. And then in this, while while Fonda is grilling him, intentional shot of sweat dripping down yeah, his forehead. It's perfect. Um, and then from there, the, so what they've they've kind of called into question the alibi. Uh, juror number two brings up the downward angle of the stab wound, um, and he's like, "Well, he was shorter than his father. How did he pull that off?" And there's a little moment of tension because Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb reenact the stabbing oh my gosh yeah this is so ridiculous lee j cobb's like getting at his throat in real life and then he grabs a knife that yeah. he got it all you know and he, it's a switchblade so it's all it's out uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like about to pretend stab him and he really cocks his hand back and everybody freaks out for Everyone's a second like, <gasps> yeah and, and then slowly he, yeah you know. um but then juror number slums whatever number yeah. he is he uh comes up and he's like that kid knew how to handle a knife he'd been in a knife fight or two he's like, i've seen so many knife fights and had to be a part of them be around them growing up in the slums mm-hmm. and nobody strikes downwards he's like no no no. you stab up and under yeah. you hold a switchblade 
the other way, not like oh, not an overhand, a downward slash. You had underhand hold. You hold it underhand, and mm-hmm. and then the baseball guy, juror number seven, changes his vote to not guilty, uh, just so this can end sooner, basically though. Mm-hmm. And they challenge him because of his reasoning, and he's like, "Well, I just I don't think he's guilty," and so. Another vote is called, and now we're at nine to three, not guilty. Mm-hmm. Juror number ten, the racist guy, stands up and starts ranting. This is another great scene in this movie. He's going off about how racist These he people. is. People, yeah, that's yeah. What he keeps saying. And just about everybody in the room slowly gets up and turns their backs on him, mm-hmm. and they just stop paying attention to his ranting. Mm-hmm. And he starts getting quieter and quieter, and. And then someone, he's like, listen to me. And then someone says, I have. Now sit down and don't open your mouth again. And then he goes over. It's juror number four. Oh, Slugworth? Yeah, Slugworth. He's like, now sit down and don't talk anymore. (laughs) Yeah, and juror number 10 goes over to this little table in the corner and he sits there by himself for pretty much the whole rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, what a great... I had this like picture of like a Donald Trump rally and just everyone slowly turning their backs on him, mm-hmm. and like that's how you, that's how you treat people like that. Mm-hmm. Is this you just turn your back on them? You don't pay attention. You, you just stop giving them a platform, mm-hmm. and just they just shut up. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you don't engage with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought it was a very powerful moment. Even juror number three turns his back on him, like. It's it's so, I don't know. I thought it was a very powerful, but also very, uh, I feel like that kind of thing doesn't happen in real life. That's a very dramatic play kind of thing. Yes. Um, but anyway, so he, uh, one of the three that's remaining that's still voting guilty says that the woman's testimony who saw the murder across the street keeps him voting guilty. And then, and then someone else is like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I'm changing my vote back to guilty. So four is the one who's like, eh, it's the testimony through the window. And then the marketing guy, 12 or whatever, he's like, I'm going to switch it back. Yeah. So we're at eight to four in favor of not guilty. Um, I think it's juror number four removes his glasses. And juror number nine, the old man, notices the indentations on his nose. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what are those? I noticed the same thing on that the witness that, that saw it from across the street. And you, she was rubbing her nose just like you are. And he's like, I guess it's just because it bothers me. And he's like, ah, she wears... And so they basically deduce that this witness wears glasses. And uh, they call into question her eyewitness testimony because she was, said she was trying to sleep when the killing happened. And so people are like, you don't sleep with your glasses on. So how could oh, she yeah. have looked out the window through a moving train? That's right. There's the timing of it. And they also with the guy, the old man's hearing them, uh, I'm going to kill you. That whole thing. Mm-hmm. It was like they determined that the killing had to have happened while the train was going mm-hmm. and so this old man had to hear it over the train the mm-hmm. roaring train that was right next to the building and then she had to see it through the window across the street mm-hmm. ac- through the moving train in between each of the cars and then yeah into their windows clearly identify him and then finds out she's got nose marks and she wasn't wearing her glasses because it was late at night, like she was going to bed. Mm-hmm. Like, who wears their glasses to bed? It's like, nobody wears their glasses to bed. And then 
yeah, yeah. sure enough they're depending on this that was the most uh for sure piece of evidence that was keeping him on the side of uh, the guilty yeah and so now they're all convinced they're at 11 to 1 in favor of not guilty the only one who is a sticking uh, the stick in the mud is lee j cobbs juror number three mm-hmm. and they want to hear his arguments why are you voting guilty and he basically stands up and yells all of the evidence that was been presented. He just is going over everything that they've already gone over and just yelling, frustrated. Don't you see? Can't you see? Blah, blah, blah. And he throws his wallet down and out of his wallet, the picture of him and his son falls out and he grabs it and he rips it up and he breaks down and he starts crying and then he whimpers, not guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, Great, great acting. Before we get out of this room and everything, um, there was, I don't know, where they talk about it a lot and they question it. It's like some of the counter evidence to the new trial that they're essentially having in here. (laughs) Um, But you've got all these 12 white men and they're Mm -hmm. in there and they talk about the uh, defense attorney and they talk about how he's court appointed and how he didn't really care for the kid, didn't really care to win and like... Mm -hmm some other like reasons for them to give this evidence and to dispute it and to question it. And, um, yeah, Lee J Cobb is like one of the main ones. Like, why do you think like they, he had a lawyer, he had mm-hmm. right to all this stuff. And like, yeah, but that guy didn't care. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. like, he had to do that. And then he's like, did you see the judge? He didn't care. Like, yeah, nobody everybody... cares for this kid. Yeah. And so he's like, we got to at least care for this kid. And then, yeah, he's going over all the evidence in rage and yeah, throws it down and sees his son. And he's like, oh, nobody cares for that kid either. Yeah, it's a culmination of he's projecting his own relationship with his kid and, and him grieving the loss of his relationship with his kid, but wanting some, some you know, well, justice for his own anger towards his relationship with his kid, mm-hmm. that, it's justif- that his anger is justified. Mm-hmm. And if this kid is not guilty... I think it means for him that his anger all this years for with his at his son has not been justified. Mm-hmm. And then he realizes that at the end and he has to he has to have a moment of reckoning with himself about his relationship with his son. Does he crinkle the photo here? I think he rips it up. Yeah. And then he, or gra- or crumbles it in his hand or something and then he just breaks down and starts crying. Yeah. Not guilty. Which is not guilty. more than that. It's an admission of his his wrongdoing, mm-hmm. his guilt. He's been holding on to this anger and this resentment for so long. Mm-hmm. And just now in this room, he was forced to confront it. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really powerful. And then they all get up and... They go get their jackets one by one, and mm-hmm. there's a cool shot where the camera's like in the closet where the jackets are being hung, and mm-hmm. they take them off, and you can see more and more inside the room. And then Lee J. Cobb's the last one, and mm-hmm. Henry Fonda goes and grabs his jacket and stands up next to him and helps him put his jacket on. And mm-hmm. then, what a great moment that is where he helps him put his jacket on. Mm-hmm. He they went through a lot together in this short amount of time, mm-hmm. and he goes over to he knows what he went through. He doesn't, he doesn't hate him for it, you know? He helps him put his jacket on. He, he empathizes. He cares for him. Um, I loved that moment. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a good moment. Um, 
Lee J. Cobb picks up his wallet and he walks out and, and Henry Fonda's the last one. He's left alone in the room and he turns back to look at the room and he leaves and the camera pans through, down the table, leaving just like you see all the evidence and all the papers and everything that they were just the, the remnants, the ruins of, of what just happened. Uh, and the camera, or then it fades to the jurors leaving the building. This is really interesting. And they were talking about this in the behind the scenes of like, we didn't, the, as the camera's panning the table, I thought the movie was going to end there. It seemed like a logical place to end the movie. Um, but they go outside of the courthouse. And Sidney Lumet talks about, they go back to the wide angle lens. And it's like as if you give the audience a chance to breathe for fresh air again. Hmm. They, they, they've escaped this hell of this little claustrophobic room and you're back outside and it's just like ah, kind of a moment um, I thought that was really good that, to give to the audience and they're all leaving the building and juror number 9 catches up with juror number 8 and they share their names uh, I didn't write their names down but they have a little human moment and they say so long to each other and Lee J. Cobb's juror number 3 is kind of walking off by himself um, and then Fonda, Henry Fonda, goes down the steps of the courthouse as the music swells, and that is the end of Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, and then they do these cool little uh, credits where they've got all of them sitting around the table, and juror number one, mm-hmm. so-and-so, juror number two, three, Lee J. Cobb, you know, mm-hmm. goes through the whole thing, the whole cast. Like a like a play, kind of at the end, they come back out and they... Yeah, take a bow. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, that was really cool. I like that, too. Uh so it comes out, it gets really good reviews at the time. It still holds 100% on Rotten Tomatoes to this day, but it did not do well at the box office. Um, they were saying like maybe it's because more movies were done in color and widescreen and VistaVision and all these different things. And this was kind of more of a throwback kind of a movie. And uh, it, But it does become popular when it starts airing on TV. Uh, it does get nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay but it loses all of them to the bridge on the river Kwai. Hmm. Um, the American film Institute ranks it the number 87 best movie of all time. Number 88 on its best thrills list. Number 42 on its best cheers list. Number two best courtroom drama. And juror number eight is ranked as the number 28th best hero. Cool. And that's all I got on 12 angry men. What makes this movie great? Um, I'll go first. Okay. Um, this movie is great because of the subject matter and because of the I don't know the setting and everything. I really like courtroom and mm-hmm. like trial, like dramas and things like that. I know the first one, the number one courtroom or trial drama is To Kill a Mockingbird for sure. Yes. Um. And this is kind of, I mean, he's not a lawyer, but it's a kind of very Atticus Finchy role where it's, you know, looking out for the underdog and mm-hmm. um, it's a really good role. I really like Henry Fonda in it. I like Henry Fonda in general. I, same. I, but I, the cast of this movie's leading with him is probably, is one thing that really makes this movie great for me. Um, and I really like Lee J. Cobb too. Yes. 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 Lee J. He's good liked how everything changed and how how succinct it was how short it was uh the yeah being in a room but i never really felt like i was trapped in the room i felt like i was just sucked into the story um and it was easier for me to do because it wasn't you know it was like content heavy but it's just in one location and everything like that it wasn't too too much for me to focus on elsewhere i know that the camera was dynamic but um 
yeah, just because it was in that one spot really helped. But the uh, the fact that it was 12 white men I didn't necessarily like. I'm glad to hear that there's other adaptations. I thought that that was kind of stupid and telling to lots of troubles and things we're going through now. I thought that was like, yeah, I don't know, not really the best. <laughs> I don't know, demographic here to have a jury. I was like, this is a very biased like jury. But then again, the whole trial was, and the judge was also um, just you know terrible. But it was nice. Henry Fonda shining some light in all these dark, dark subjects, and you know trying to be a hero. I think he's a he's a good hero. I'm glad we watched this movie. Um, what do you think makes this movie great? Well, just like you said, I think this movie is an acting masterclass. Um, the writing and the acting just keeps a movie that doesn't really have any business being a tense, suspenseful thriller. It It is that because of the acting. Um, it's also intensely personal. I love how almost every single one of these characters has a personality and is a real, fully fleshed out character. Uh, I love that the tension that builds and, and the excitement that you get just from dialogue. Uh, there's real stakes here. It's about a kid's life that hangs in the balance. Like I discussed, I love the camera movements and the zooms and kind of the attention to detail that they put in and the planning that they put into camera and lighting and all those things to add to the story and add to the characters. And it's short, it's entertaining and artful. It's kind of the best thing that you can think of. It's really quick. It's light in terms of like, it's straightforward. The plot goes from here to here to here to here. It doesn't really, there's no extra fluff or anything to it. It's, it's engaging. I don't know. It's kind of everything that I like in a movie. Mm. So that's 12 Angry Men. Yay. And you mentioned the one that we're doing next. Yeah. It's the other one that came out in 1957 that beats 12 Angry Men at the Academy Awards. We're talking about the bridge on the river Kwai ranked number 13 on the original list and number 36 on the 10th anniversary update directed by David Lean. And only a really brief three and a half hours. Yeah, something like, <laughs> um, I, th- I think it's actually under three hours. I think it's <laughs> 2.45 or something like that. Okay, but that's doable. That's the, that'll be next time. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with your family and friends if you're enjoying the podcast. We really appreciate all our listeners and getting the podcast spread out around to, to new people. Uh, For this time, my name is Andy Fernandez. And my name is Michael Fernandez. Thank you guys for joining us on What Makes It Great.